Finishing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. When you look back at the FBI and the Department of Justice during the Obama administration, you've had Comey fired for misconduct, Andrew McCabe fired for misconduct, Strzok fired for misconduct, Lisa Page demoted, all of whom had a hand in this Russia investigation that Mueller's now running with. Unbelievable. In a day and time where we find everything to talk about but the games, Tiger Woods had the sports world transfixed. And it reminded us of what sports is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be the ultimate distraction. It's supposed to be about something that pulls us away from the dregs and the drama of what we have to deal with in real life. And now, Stacey Washington. Oh, yeah. It's time. It's that time of day where we sit down, buckle in, and start the conversation. We're here, and we're on American Family Radio. We're also on Urban Family Talk and YouTube and Periscope. And, of course, we're live streaming to Facebook. <laughs> so we're ready to rumble. We have a fantastic show for you today. And uh, first, I just want to say um, it's true. Tiger Woods said awesome things about St. Louis. And I was so excited about it. And then today, Stephen A. Sw- Smith commenting on what sports is supposed to be. And I'm, I, I've told you that I'm not the biggest football person. Um, I we always watch the Super Bowl, but it's not like I'm sitting there on, you know, on the edge of my seat. I'm usually actually doing a craft or serving. You know, if we have people over, if we have any friends nearby, I'll be serving stuff or I'll just be doing a craft that I've picked up to work on while the game is on so I can participate and be in the space. But I have no idea what's going on in football. And that's OK. Um, I do enjoy watching the track and field on TV and I enjoy watching basketball when, uh, you know, it's it's certain teams and obviously when our kids are playing. But I do think the point that uh, Stephen A. Smith makes there is worth a conversation. So we're going to touch on that again later in the show. Not to bash anyone or not to say that people who play sports don't have a voice in this country. But we, unless we have political jobs, sometimes it's okay to just do our jobs and let the politics be on the side because people are looking for an outlet. And uh, I think our primary outlet is what we do with our faith, obviously, we can go to church and we can go to our, our you know, Wednesday night service and we can go to Bible studies and we can fellowship. And that's a huge release for us. It's a way that we reconnect and we center as, you know, the worldly folks like to say they want to find their center. The center is Christ. You know, we find that and then we smooth out and then we're better able to handle things. But it's also nice to go to a movie. It's also nice to go, uh, you know, watch a sporting event. And when we start to mix everything up so that you can never escape politics, it gets really frustrating for people. Uh, it gets frustrating for me. I actually like times where I'm not talking about politics and thinking about politics. And so if I know I like that release, then certainly Americans like it as well. And so we want to we want to make sure that we get to that. Today on the program, we have Kathy Barnett. She's an activist and a veteran. And it's her first time on the program. I can't wait to speak to her. I've seen her many times on Fox and Friends, and she's always brilliant. And so this is going to be a really uh, awesome interview with her. And then later, same hour, both of these interviews are in our first hour today. We have HUD Secretary Dr. Ben Carson. He is calling, uh, we're going to be speaking with him, about the new proposed changes to a rule by the Housing and Urban Development uh, Agency that has to do with building affordable housing 
and the Obama era attempt to force affordable housing into more affluent areas. Now, I've I've been in both of these situations as my husband and I used to live in the city of St. Louis in, in a kind of up-and-coming area. We chose to live there so that we could have some rental property. And during that time, we had you know interaction with low-income housing neighbors and things like that. And then when we moved out to the suburbs, we were in an area that didn't have any low-income housing in it, um, or I should say very, very little. And then now we live in an area that has absolutely none. And so having experienced all three of those environments, the, the idea that the government can socially engineer change like this is so patently and obviously not a doable thing for the government. So there has to be something else that can be done. And I love some of the ideas that I've heard already from Dr. Carson, and I'm looking forward to speaking to him about that again. And then, of course, we're going to be talking about, if you haven't heard by now, you're going to get to hear the audio today on the show of Hillary Clinton. Um, she said something that was so disgusting. It's not Hillary. It's Chelsea. Pardon me. Chelsea, Hillary Clinton, part two. She said something about abortion and equating abortion to economic prosperity. It's such a warped thing for someone to say that I've got it coupled together for us here in this first segment because it's it's as if someone said it's say anything you want about religion day and, and economics and, and life and just, you know, field day time, you know, all bets are off. Just say whatever you want. And so people came out of the woodwork and were saying some crazy stuff, starting with Steyer. He's a wealthy guy. He gives a lot of money to the Democrats and Democratic causes. And he specifically, his favorite thing to do is to fund an impeachment effort, which he has added another $10 million to this impeach Donald Trump fund. Now, it's interesting because he's wealthy and he honestly believes that because someone was elected that he didn't like, he can use his money to unseat and undo the will of the rest of us Americans because we don't matter because we don't have as much money as he has. I find that fascinating. It's not going to work. But it's something that he's actively pursuing. So he's at this big uh, kind of like it's a it's a conference. There are a lot of people there and he's up on the stage. He loves doing these. I mean, who doesn't love, you know, going in front of a a friendly audience and talking about topics and having them, you know, ask you questions and all of that. There's nothing wrong with it. But he's up there and he gets asked a question about religion from a Democrat. And the group is it's it's a room with a few hundred Democrats in it. And they have a, you know, a mic stand up there where people can approach and ask questions. And he is asked this question about religion, which my first thought is, what do you know about it? How would you know? Are you a religious person? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, a part of a triune God who died on the cross, rose again on the third day, went to hell and took the keys of death and now sits at the right hand of the father, pleading the blood of, pleading his own blood for us 24 hours a day on the mercy seat? Do you believe that? Because him just saying he might be a Christian or something like that, that's, 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 that, that dog won't hunt. That's not going to fly with those of us who understand what being a Christian really means. And I, no, I don't mean a fundamentalist. Anyone who is listening who thinks that what I just said about Christianity is fundamentalist, you're just using words um, that don't mean what you think they mean. There's nothing fundamentalist about it if you mean extreme and, and crazy. It's just, it's just regular, plain old, dyed-in-the-wool Christianity, the kind the founders practiced. So I want you to listen to him answer this question, and then we're going to talk about an example of why he's so wrong. And there, these examples abound. It's number one. I have a concern at what appears to be an overwhelming support by the evangelicals for Donald Trump. 
I would ask maybe for Democrats or anybody else who belongs to a church to address this issue, to ask their congregation to think about this a little bit more, and uh, churches who don't uh, go along with this administration to speak out loudly, and that is my wish. Thank so, you. so, Ellie, I, I think what you're saying is something that is actually really important in America today. And there is a deliberate attempt to mix religion and politics. And we're seeing it, and I think it's important that people be aware of it, and I think that that combination explains a lot of the people who really can't see any way to reject this president. So first of all, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about Donald Trump and accepting or rejecting what he's doing. So the fact that a ton of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump is not so much a statement about him as it is a statement about who he was running against, which was the pro-abortion Hillary Clinton, who went so far in her aims to indoctrinate her own child into accepting abortion that she raised a child who would say something like, um, you know, since aborting 60 million Americans in 1973, we've had $3.5 billion in positive economic impact. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to what she said, and then we're going to connect all of this up because I've got this story about this. Uh, he's, he's someone who works for the federal government, and in his private time, he exercises his right to free speech by running a Christian web website. Someone wants him investigated because he shouldn't be allowed to do that because he works for the federal government. But let's listen to Hillary Clinton Part 2, her daughter Chelsea. It's number three. Whether you kind of fundamentally care about reproductive rights and access, right, because, again, these are not the same thing. Um, if you care about social justice or economic justice, um, agency, you, you have to care about this, right? It is not mm -hmm. a disconnected fact to Justice T-shirt of 1973 that American women entering the labor force from 1970 to 2009 added $3.5 trillion to our economy, right? Like the net new entrance of women, that is not disconnected from the fact that Roe became the law of the land in January of 1973. So I think whatever it is that people say they care about, I think you can connect to this issue. Of course, I would hope that they would care about our equal rights and dignity to make our own choices. Um, but if that is not sufficiently persuasive, um, hopefully kind of some of these other arguments that you're hearing expressed so beautifully will be. Because if that is not sufficiently persuasive, then I hope that you will just go somewhere and never speak again because you're bigoted and you're ignorant and you definitely don't know science because those women were only able to enter the workforce because they had abortions. I mean, have you ever heard anything so ludicrous? First of all, if we had 60 million more Americans, American citizens, Americans raised in this country by American parents, then that would be 60, more, 60 million more people who would have been in the workforce in some way. The majority of those 60 million people with our life expectancy and healthcare system would have been functioning members of the society who would have paid taxes and our social service net, namely social security, wouldn't be strained to the breaking point, about to completely go insolvent in the next less than 10 years from now. They're saying 2023, 2024, 
that's when the Social Security lockbox will be completely empty. I mean, it's empty now, but we're talking about it being to the point where there there aren't enough workers. We're close to that now. So, of course, we're importing workers all over the place. So the ones that we're bringing in, the majority of those who are coming in illegally, they're not contributing to Social Security because they're working off book. They don't have Social Security numbers. They're not funding Social Security. I mean, do you see how this is all connected? This woman who her name was Ellie, she stands up and she asks Steyer this question about how why, why don't people who go to these evangelical churches who are Democrats speak up in their churches about how why these people shouldn't support Donald Trump because of what Hillary Clinton said and because evangelical churches are not packed to the gills with Democrats. Some Democrats attend evangelical churches, but the majority of the people who attend evangelical churches are moderate Republicans and then just carry on over to the right, to your hardcore, Bible-thumping, gun-owning, you know, pray to Jesus Christ, expect an answer back, believes in the Holy Spirit, you know, prays for her neighbors, attends Bible study, memorizes scripture, you know, those kinds of people. So when we talk about evangelical Christians and you listen to someone like Ellie, it's clear that she doesn't know what evangelical Christians believe, what the people who are sitting in those pews are hearing from their pastor, and she doesn't know what's in the Bible. This isn't about supporting Donald Trump. As much as I voted for him and and like him, it's not about supporting him. Because right now we've got this crisis going on. Donald Trump has, uh, you know, tweeted out that Omarosa, he said that dog. And so everyone is taking that to mean, you know, that there's another derivative of that that he must have meant. And, you know, how dare he call a black woman a dog, et cetera, et cetera. And while they're all in their feelings, hashtag, you know, Kiki, do you love me? I'm wondering why people think this is about Donald Trump. You're not really being intelligent if you think the reason evangelicals voted for Donald Trump is Donald Trump. They voted for him because of the life issue, the Second Amendment, the First Amendment. They voted for him because Hillary Clinton is a rabid pro-abort. Exhibit A is her daughter saying, you know, women only enter the workforce because they can have abortions. Come on now. This is not about Donald Trump. This is about what the Bible says. If you're talking about evangelical Christians. So when we get back, we're going to have Kathy Barnett. She's a veteran and former adjunct professor. Stay right there. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, I'm reading through the Old Testament now, and I'm coming to places that are named that I see on our Israel tour every March. It's really fascinating to think that Jericho existed way back in the Old Testament thousands of years ago, and I can visit there today. The same can be said for Jerusalem. The Bible literally comes to life when you visit Israel, the Holy Land. Now we're going in March. My wife, Allison and I, we lead these tours every March. So if you would like to go with us, you need to go to the website and check it out. It's twholyland.com, twholyland.com. If you want a brochure sent to your mailbox, just call us at 800-FAMILIES, option five. That's 800-F-A-M-I-L-I-E-S, option five, and we'll send you a brochure. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. People who persevere are an endangered species. Every year, thousands are leaving the ministry. Turnover is especially high among pastors. I've talked to quite a few former pastors and other full-time Christian workers who have, in essence, said to me that it just got to a point where the hassles and the pressures just weren't worth it. Disappointment and opposition wore many of them down, and they left the ministry. I'm not suggesting that we should judge or be critical of everyone who leaves the ministry. I do believe that God calls some to occupy a full-time position of ministry for a season. But I just can't help thinking that more people are becoming casualties of the pressures and pain and the hassles of ministry than there should be. I'm reminded of Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Ezra was commissioned to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But something happened that really knocked the wind out of the sails of those who were engaged in that project, that calling. Listen to these words. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. Verse 5. And hired counselors against them to frustrate the council all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They stopped them. They said, this is not worth it. Listen, the enemy seeks to discourage and will come at all of us from time to time. But God is greater than our opposition. He's almighty, and so we need to focus on his greatness and what he can do. Are you discouraged? Here's what I want you to remember and do today. Before you quit, spend time alone with God. Get some godly counsel. Make your decision in light of God's call and not in reaction to opposition. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Check us out at StacyOnTheRight.com, AFR.net, and UrbanFamilyTalk.com. We're excited to, uh, to be with you today. Also excited about our next guest. My first time getting a chance to interview her after watching her many, many times on all of the shows, all the shows that matter, and the ones where uh, you kind of go in there and you joust and you fight. Uh, on cable news. So Kathy Barnett is a veteran, former adjunct professor and conservative political commentator. Her website is kathybarnett.com. Kathy, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I love your videos where you're in your vehicle and the two cutest kids ever in the backseat and you're just <laughs> laying in on issues. And so that was my first exposure to you on Facebook. Since then, you've gone on to do frequent guests on Fox and Friends and other, uh, you know, really great media. And it's been just wonderful to see you adding to the conversation. So today, the conversation is unfortunately dominated by Omarosa and what appears to be a real penchant for lying. I wanted to get your take on um, like what makes her think we're going to believe this garbage. You know what? Um, Omarosa uh, is doing what is in Omarosa to do. This is not new. I don't think any of this has taken either the left or the right by surprise. She has always come across as a very um, me-centered, manipulative individual when we first saw her on The Apprentice to today. And so she's just doing what is in her to do. And so this is not going to go away because she has a book to sell, and it is all about um, getting more and more um, exposure for her book. 
Uh, and so I don't think this is going to go away. And, you know, and quite frankly, I could care less what she says. I know that we have some um, the latest rounds of uh, take conversations mm-hmm. that she has had with some of the insiders on uh, President Donald Trump's team is now out and being exposed. And it looks as though uh, uh, um, uh, as though those particular tapes are incriminating people. But I'm often reminded with even April Ryan uh, said uh, uh, that even her tapes had been doctored by Omarosa as well. So I think we're I think this is going to continue. I think maybe even more. Things will come out. We will see what she has to say. But ultimately, I think we have to judge Omarosa based on who we know her to be. Very me-centered. You know, I, I I think so. You made some excellent points there, and I want to um, I want to I just want to unpack a couple. First of all, you know, April Ryan is not one that I would say, oh well, you know, there's an expert on things. But it, you know, it's kind of like she's on the other side, right? She's she's on the yeah. opposition from from where I, I, you and I sit politically. But it's interesting that in her statements, she's not really commenting on the politics of it. She's just saying, you know, I this this is not accurate. What what she's saying, I said, that's not accurate, which impugns the character of Omarosa a little bit more pointedly because Omarosa appears to be exposing herself as a total plant in the White House. I, I thought when I first heard the story, Kathy, I thought, oh, you know, she knew she was possibly on the chopping block. She took something in to uh, record it because she thought that, you know, General Kelly was going to maybe lay into her, say something inappropriate when I when I heard she taped the, the firing. And so I was like, well, it was wrong. It was in the Situation Room. It's a total, you know, breach of not only protocol, but um, the secure aspect of that. It's like a separate silo that's never supposed to have any recording devices in it. And she just strolled in with a phone, you know, so there's that issue. But then you go on and every day she's like drip dripping a few more tapes and the tapes go further and further back. They're in the campaign. So that means this is who she is. Yeah, This is who she is. She's manipulative from the beginning of it all. And isn't that that like the worst kind of person? Can you think of someone who would be worse than that, who will, who would um, engender themselves into your confidence and all the while taping the whole you, time. <laughs> um, editing, potentially, if April Ryan is correct? And several other people have come out saying that her comments uh, uh, that she has made um, about them in her book it's false that those situations never occurred, that they never had those conversations with her. And in fact, that she never even called them to confirm it. Well, you got Frank Luntz, who, ha- I mean, he's pretty credible. Like, the, this is not some guy who just showed up in the woodwork a week ago. And he, this is a man who's been in politics for decades. Yeah. And he's been doing polling Frank for Luntz decades. Frank has been around for a while. He's yeah. He's on page 149. She claims, I heard someone say that someone <laughs> said he used the N word. He said, that's not true. And in fact, she never even called me to confirm it. Yeah. Yeah. And then others. So, so. Uh, you know, Lynn Patton, who's worked with the Trump family and the Trump organization as an employee yeah. for decades. And she's someone who has been there from day one. She was there before Omarosa was brought in. So 
um, the, the relationship, it's, it's not like they've never crossed paths before since both being in New York, both being in the Trump orbit, yeah. Lynn, uh, much clo- more closely than, than Omarosa. And she has come out with a, an extraordinarily strongly worded statement that I read first thing this morning. I was like, oh, and Lynn's usually really <laughs> nice. You know, she's like one of the nicest yeah. people uh, in the is. whole crew. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and actually, I met her at the White House. I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, she's so sweet. And then I read that statement this morning. I was like, so this is what it looks like when you get on her bad side. Oh, this is not good. And <laughs> she's and, and it's not it's not really insulting to her. Pers- it's not personal attacks. It's really a professional assessment of what she considers to be a smear. And so I guess I, yesterday I was yeah. saying on the show, look, this isn't good for her. Who will hire her? But I see now the strategy is she's basically saying to everyone who thought she was a Trump supporter, that was something I did because it was convenient for me. It was my job. And now that it's not my job anymore, I'm going to tell you the truth about who these people were. And I just don't think even with her stellar education and her background, you know, that she has in the professional world, I don't think it's going to hunt with most Americans that she's basically a double crosser. But we're supposed to trust her on this. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I believe that the liberal left is going to now give her a platform prior to her coming out with these salacious comments against the president. No one on the left wanted mm-hmm. to be bothered with her. And we mm-hmm. rarely saw her even on the right because of her character, how she comes across. It's just very snake-like characteristics. And so no one really gave her... Um, a tremendous amount of deference uh, to bring her on that was on the left. So now that she has a bone to pick with the president and has some dirty laundry to to try to expose potentially on the president, I think we're going to see more and more of her on the left because this is the trend of the left. They don't care who it is, if it's a porn star to a prostitute to, you know, someone like Omarosa. They will give airtime to whomever has Anything salacious has to be salacious uh, against this president. So, unfortunately, I think this is going to become, you know, something that we're going to have to contend with for a while. Well, I think, you know, it's when when certain things come out, I, I, I hadn't actually intended on discussing it again. But, you know, there are more tapes. And as I was kind of thinking through it this morning and I knew you would be joining in today, it occurred to me that and, and it's not just Lynn Patton, by the way, Alveda King has also issued yeah. a statement and they apparently they met on numerous occasions, which I, you know, I'll stick my finger in there. I've met Alveda King many, many times. We've been to conferences, yeah. where, you know, and I've She's sat adorable. with her. Isn't she? She's just such a strong woman Wonderful. of God. And, and so she, when she says, I don't believe this person, you know, it's, it's a real statement uh, that, that you, you kind of can't discount Alveda King coming out and saying, this woman is not telling the truth. And here's how we interacted. And her statement is just as strongly worded as Lynn Patton's. And that came out this morning. And so I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we we didn't see her get a lot of traction on places like Fox News and things like that. And I also think she probably could have gone on more often, but she didn't want to because now we know that the entire time she was working there, she never intended on being a long-term employee. She never intended on truly seeing things through until the next campaign. This was just a vehicle for her to get a book out and then make a foray into the left. And the left will begrudgingly offer her time while she has fresh dirt on the president, quote-unquote. Yeah. It doesn't have to be true. <laughs> Before but they then, throw her back exactly. into the refuge. Thank you. That, and she'll be back in the heap 
after this trying to get spots yeah, on Big Brother. It's, not, it's only matter of time. No one really, I mean, even before her book came out, uh, no one, you know, you got the sense in various circles that no one really liked her at all, and especially the left, and especially the black community or the black leaders, you know, uh, leaders within the liberal, democratic, progressive arena. They, they, they did not care for her at all. And in fact, that, you know, on a number of occasions, we saw videos of her being um, attacked verbally, um, even with um, black men uh, walking up to accost her. Uh, so no one really cared that much for Omarosa. And so I believe that this is her last ditch effort to make a couple of million dollars because she really has nothing else to offer. Um, how many more uh, reality television shows can she possibly go on? Well, yeah, uh, I mean, so there are fresh new people. It for her. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And and so that that brings me to some of the other. So yesterday, there's this audio from later in the evening yesterday of um, Hillary Clinton part two, which is Chelsea. Chelsea's oh out telling, yeah, telling women, American women, that the reason <laughs> American women have been able to add, and this, this is you and me, Kathy. We're both Americans. We're both women. We've both worked. We both actually served in the military. So we've, we've, you know, definitely added to the economy, if you will. She's saying the reason pe- that women were able to do that is since 1973, add $3.5 billion to the economy is because we had abortion. So we could have abortions, and that's what made it, it, it possible for us to enter the workforce and contribute, which is so yeah. ridiculously false I'm when diabolical. you consider. Yeah, I it's, mean, like, it's how evil. Demented. How demented. And especially for the black community. And this is not something that black people talk about a lot, right? We, we'll raise our fists for injustices against police. We'll even take a knee against po- police brutality. Um, all the while, the very thing that is decimating our community, no one wants to talk about it because we don't want to air our dirty laundry. But for every 1,000 black babies that are born, 477 are murdered in their mother's womb. That's a 32% kill rate in the black community. Tell me how many doctors and lawyers, uh, fathers, daughters, sons, we're annihilating, not even having the opportunity to have a, to have the chance to live life. And now we have people left who are completely unmasked about what it is, what their agenda is, but it's decimating the black community. I find it very demented that she would brag about it. Well, and so the point that you just made there, and, you know, again, podcasts can be found at urbanfamilytalk.com slash Stacey. You can share that bit with anyone you'd like. You can also go to the YouTube page, share that, that this interview with Kathy Barnett, veteran, former adjunct professor, conservative political commentator. You can share that bit that she just shared with you, that salient bit of information with anyone who is wondering why evangelicals voted for Donald Trump because he's pro-life. It's not about the tweets. It's not about the demeanor or whether or not we would have dinner with yeah. him or, you know, it's, it's not that it's, it's these hardcore issues that really, when you look at how many fewer black people there are in America due to abortion, 16 uh. million or so. If you look at how many fewer Americans there are, 18 states worth of Americans have been aborted since Roe v. Wade lawfully in this country. If you just look at the last reportable year, 2016, 958,000 abortions. When you think about those numbers, not as, you know, we just always throw statistics out. And as Americans, we're used to big numbers with our statistics because we are an affluent nation. But when you look at the abortion numbers and consider the gravity of that kind of bloodshed, and then you hear Hillary Clinton 
and her daughter making these kinds of statements about how, well, the reason we have economic contributions to the society are because of abortion, you begin to just get a little taste. It's not the full-blown Monty. You're just basically in taste test mode <laughs> of what crazy is going on for pro-aborts. It's that, I mean, it is yeah. straight from the pits of hell. <laughs> it is the only way that I, you know, I mean, to say these things out loud, you know, like certain things, you know, I grew up in the, in the very deep South, so there are certain things you may be thinking, but you never dare say them out loud. And today we have a culture where some of the most backward, twisted thinking, people are very emboldened to just say these things right out in open air and then dare you to judge it or to comment on it or to say, excuse me, I disagree with that. Yeah, and that's the yeah. culture in which we find ourselves in. Well, we find ourselves there, but we, I, I, I honestly believe that as many of us as are saying, excuse me, you know, I, I, you know, bless you, but that's just not true. There are many others true, out yeah. there. Yeah, they, they believe that it's not true, but they're not saying anything because there's so much yeah. ostracization on the left for people like yourself and myself where, you know, when it wasn't, wasn't always readily apparent that I was conservative. And before that, I had friends of every political stripe, every background, and they didn't know my politics. And we didn't discuss politics because we had kids and soccer games and things to go do. But when it became evident that I was conservative, you know, other conservatives were like, oh, that's that's cool. I didn't know that about you. And liberals were kind of like, oh, no, that's untouchable. We can't we can't be we can't be going to dinner. We can't be doing this and that because that's you're not you're not you're not honoring your ancestors. I had someone tell me that. Especially, I'm like, well, who are they? Thank you so much for saying that. Especially as a black person, why is it that only within the black community we all must think in a monochromatic fashion? Only black people are not allowed to have mm -hmm. differing opinions. We all have to think alike. We all have to look alike. We all have to dress alike. We all have to live in the same kind of zip code. Mm -hmm. And the moment one of us dare to say, um, I'm different, I think differently, all of a sudden, you're an outcast. You're a disgrace to your black heritage. It's, I mean, and, and black people tend to see it as they take it as a personal insult mm -hmm. if you say, I don't agree with the Democratic platform. Yes. I don't agree with same-sex marriage. I don't agree with pedophilia, even, mm -hmm. or transgenderism. I don't agree with you know, um, with, 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 the, with abortion on demand. I don't agree with these things. Um, and so, therefore, I'm not going to vote Democrat. They take it as a personal insult. They do. And you know what, Kathy? It's such a personal insult that they will be friends with your friends who are conservatives that are white, but they'll look down their nose at you. In other words, white people can be yeah. Republicans, but black people cannot. And they, they, they enforce that. <laughs> I, unbelievable. So you have been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today. I want to speak to you again soon. More issues, more fantasticness from Kathy Barnett, veteran, former adjunct professor and conservative political commentator. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Thank you so much. We'll be back with Dr. Ben Carson, HUD secretary, right after this. Stay there. What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. Do you have moments in your life when you feel like everyone is demanding a piece of you, armed with all their urgent requests and deadlines? The Gospels mention some similar moments for Jesus when he realized it was time for him to get away, to be by himself, and spend time with the Father. 
Why not begin to find some moments in your day to spend time alone with God? Perhaps in the morning before the day gets legs. God wants for there to be times when you simply escape with Him, alone, and recharge. He wants to be with you and help you to slow down for a few minutes and seek Him. Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. When you were a kid in college, did you get to decide whether your roommate was the same gender as you? Would you allow your daughter to have a biologically male roommate in college, even if he dressed as a woman? Well, the University of Minnesota doesn't care what you want. Under a new gender policy under consideration by U of M, simply failing to identify another student by their chosen pronoun is grounds for expulsion. Some of the options are agender, gender nonconforming, genderqueer, non-binary, two-spirit, or you can simply make one up. Housing facilities also subject to the new gender policies would make it impossible to deny a roommate assignment based upon the fact, for example, that the person is a biological male and you are a female. Locker rooms and showers would be similarly adjusted to the detriment of women. Some faculty are concerned that expulsion for misgendering another could amount to a violation of their free speech. Well, you don't say. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Donald Trump's America. As the Turkish lira continues its collapse, the Turkish president Erdogan is in part pointing the finger at the United States. Erdogan saying the recent U.S. actions are a stab in the back against his country. On Friday, President Trump announced that he would begin the process to raise steel and aluminum tariffs against Turkey. Steel tariffs set to now be at 50% against that country. The head of the president's Council of Economic Advisors, Kevin Hassett, saying Monday morning that tariffs are not the culprit of what's happening within Turkey's borders. As we've looked around the world, when countries have kind of lost the rule of law, uh, moved away from democracy, then capital tends to want to get out of that country and that can lead to a currency crisis like we're seeing. As tensions escalate, the U.S. government is still trying to secure the release of the American pastor Andrew Brunson, who's been detained in Turkey since 2016 for terrorism charges. Hassett reiterating the administration's stance that the tariff increase is separate from the diplomatic talks. At the White House, Blake Berman, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. I just want to say how awesome it was to speak to Kathy Barnett. She's just as fantastic on the air live as she is on her television hits and on her videos that you can find at kathybarnett.com. Um, and I, I have to just one more time. This is not about particular candidates. And I think we've allowed the left, uh, you know, for people who are going to misrepresent what we believe, that this is a person issue. And there are plenty of Americans, millions, who really, really love Donald Trump. And, you know, the, it's, it's a kind of a personality thing as well. But the majority of his support is coming from people who are looking at what he promised to do and the policies, and they're adhering to that. They're, they're voting for that. And... If you have Trump derangement syndrome, you can't understand that because it's just too tough to separate your feelings from what the president has been able to accomplish. And it's a lot. He has accomplished a lot. And the things that we're getting in exchange for him accomplishing that, the the Supreme Court picks, the reduction in regulation and the work that's being done in housing and urban development, they're worth it. They're worth the warts and all, if if that's what you want to call it. And, and I don't really care what's tweeted. What I care is what's signed into legislation. 
And so that brings us to our next guest. And such a pleasure to speak to Dr. Carson again. He's the HUD Secretary, Housing and Urban Development. And uh, it's just a pleasure to, to have you on the show, Dr. Carson. All right. Pleasure to be with you. So let's talk about this new rule um, that the Obama administration actually put into place where they're trying to get more uh, affordable housing into wealthy neighborhoods. But the way they went about it is to kind of say either you take these housing developments or we take away your money and you have another way of approaching this. Yeah, well, you know, I I think they meant well. And, uh, you know, this was part of the Fair Housing Act. There's uh, uh, a few sentences that talk about affirmatively furthering fair housing. And uh, it was a way to look at, uh, you know, segregation, discrimination, uh, and and things that would prevent, you know, fair housing. Um, The the problem with it is that it had a tendency to to use a lot of bureaucratic tools, uh, and it it expanded a few sentences into hundreds of pages of uh, regulatory uh, obstacles. And it made it very difficult for a lot of the municipalities to uh, comply, and they were really uh, not very happy. So we said, let's, let's look at this thing and see if we can, can actually take care of the real problem, because the big problem is that we're only able to help one out of four who need affordable housing. And uh, we need a lot more affordable housing, but it's very hard to build it uh, particularly in the areas where you see a lot of homelessness, uh, Seattle and Los Angeles, places like that where a large amount of the property, in fact, in Los Angeles, 70 to 80% is zoned for single-family homes. And you put on top of that the multitudinous regulations, and from the get-go, you have something that's too expensive. Uh, so we said maybe there's a way that we can use this uh, in a way uh, to incentivize people to remove many of those regulatory barriers so that we can, in fact, be able to do something we're able to do actually quite well, and that's build uh, you know, affordable housing that is holistic in nature, that, that you know, contains all the elements that are nurturing in a community. Okay, so you, you've unpacked a lot there, um, Secretary Carson, and it has been... Um, for me, it's been a real pleasure to see what you're doing at HUD because you're taking an agency that has important work to do that is really, it's kind of mired in an outdated form from decades ago. And you're not only streamlining it and updating it, but you're bringing some common sense to it. So what you're talking about here is rampant homelessness in some of the most liberal and slash affluent areas in the country. And they seem to have no clue as to how to handle it. And so Housing and Urban Development is proposing to come in and do exactly what? Like once you're able to change the rules and regulations, what would you like to see happen? Well, one of the, one of the things that we're doing also, I, I need to add, is we're having some uh, hearings. Uh, where we're having actual constituents and people who apply these programs and people who actually live through these programs be able to weigh in on what would they like to see happen rather than have a bunch of bureaucrats impose something upon them. But, you know, what we're doing now is only a part of what the overall plan is. The overall plan is to get poor people out of poverty. 
we have systems in place that keep people mired in, in poverty. And, and we have, you know, things like if, if your income goes up, your rent goes up so that nobody wants to take a raise, no one wants to get a good job, no one wants to bring another income-earning person into the household, no one wants to get married. You know, it's almost like these things were designed to keep people in poverty. So, you know, our overall goal really is, is to change all of those perverse incentives that, uh, that keep people in poverty, but also to create opportunity. Uh, things like the Envision Centers where we take, you know, the 22 federal agencies and the various programs that they're able to offer along with state and local programs, nonprofits, private sector, faith-based organizations, provide the kind of wraparound services all under one roof so that we actually can show people the way and aid them in climbing that ladder of opportunity because the American dream is for everybody, and a lot of people have forgotten that. They think it's only for certain segments of our society. I, I So I agree wholeheartedly, but I think one of the parts that was so alarming about um, when President Obama announced the changes, to, and you know he did some rulemaking and he made some changes I, to I, this I've policy. I've lost you. I can't hear you. Oh, uh, can you hear me now? It's, I'm, I'm yes. hoping that's yes, absolutely. So what we we saw with President Obama is he basically said, you rich people, you know, you're not doing enough for affordable housing. You're not letting affordable housing units be built in your area. And he he kind of used it as a way to divide America, where I see and hear you saying envision centers, housing and urban development, updating policies and having hearings and doing rulemaking in a very public way to bring people together. Am I right about that? Exactly. And, so, to, and to educate people because, see, a lot of people, you know, they're behind these zoning restrictions because they have the impression uh, of a multifamily dwelling as, you know, a, a ghetto with rats and roaches and, and crime and all of that stuff that used to happen. Uh, we don't support that kind of thing anymore. What we're building is completely different from that now mixed income neighborhoods uh, that that have what is needed for people to flourish and will attract all kinds of people. And that's the, re the record that we've seen already around the country. And what you're talking about, uh, Secretary Carson, is something that's already happening in areas where the development is driven by, you know, a developer decides this area of the city would be great for mixed income housing. And it would be storefronts with apartments on top, some single families, some townhomes. But it's all centered around the idea that it's a walkable neighborhood with a supermarket or some kind of storefront grocery. There's gas stations nearby and it's in an area that's close into the city center. So it attracts young people who are working in the city who may not exactly. have, you know, a big family yet. And you're saying these kinds of developments can also be uh, partially, uh, they can partially be populated by people who are low income as well as everyone else, because in the natural setting, when they occur organically, the, the low income people are already there. So it's already happening. You just want to make it more uh, accessible. Exactly. And, you know, with gentrification, uh, we want we want to make sure that we are not forcing people out to no place that they can afford. So, what has the so reception they, been? These, these are things that we have seen work: uh, public-private partnerships, uh, the opportunity zones that have been created by the new tax plan, where people can take unrealized capital gains and invest them into these opportunity funds creating win-win situations. 
we get the money and the investments that's needed for the neglected areas, and people have an opportunity to make some money. So I want to bring something else into the subject, and that has been in the news pretty much nonstop the entirety of the president's administration, which is this idea that he somehow hates people of color, specifically black people, and how that comports with what you've seen working in housing and urban development and the work that you're doing, which helps people of all stripes, all, all ethnic backgrounds who happen to be uh, you know, stuck in, in poverty, the work that you're doing does not really match up with a president who has a problem with race, does it? No, no it doesn't. And, and he and I have had an opportunity to talk about it. We talk about it frequently. Uh, the difference with him is that you know, he, he doesn't uh, do a lot of identity politics. You know, he wants to do things that work for everybody. And that does, in fact, seem to be happening. You, you look at the black unemployment rate, the, black, the, the Hispanic unemployment rate, the women's unemployment rate, all are benefiting tremendously from the policies that have been set in place. And this is really only the beginning. I agree. Um, and, and I'm excited about the work that you're doing. And I think, so what are, what are the time uh, frame? Like when does the public comment end for this new proposed rulemaking that HUD is rolling uh, out? We, sh- we should have the uh, new rule out uh, by the end of this fall. So okay. we're, we're excited about uh, moving forward with this. Uh, we're already seeing progress. And uh, a, a lot of people, what, what people don't understand is we hear from the people who actually are involved and running uh, some of the multifamily uh, development, and they are thrilled. Mm. Now, that's exciting, because when you hear the, the people who are the actual developers, when they get excited, that's the precursor to them doing some amazing things, because all they want to do is build buildings and create communities. And when the government gets out of the way, it, it just means more development, that's more jobs, and also more places for people to live to get them that's, off the that's streets. That's exactly right. And, and I should mention also that we're really pushing the concept of Section 3, which is part of the Fair Housing Act, which says if you're getting uh, federal money, you have an obligation to hire, train, or give contracts to the low-income people uh, being affected in that area. People have found ways to get around that for the last 50 years, and now we're uh, revamping it so as to incentivize people to actually take advantage of it because we have the workforce. You, You see that there are more jobs now than there are people looking for them. Uh, we're going to address that issue at, at the same time, get people out of poverty. Uh, so this is so refreshing, but it, as always, when I interview you in, in the spring at the media row for radio people, it was a pleasure. It is a pleasure now. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. HUD secretary, Dr. Ben Carson. Thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. I, I'm, I'm so glad about this. Um, and the reason that I'm glad about it is because I know the reputation is, well, if you're on the right, you don't care about poor people and you don't care about babies once they're born. Those things couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, one of the things that you're, you just heard is because Dr. Carson is not someone who you know, struggles with, with money or anything. He's, he's obviously so seriously invested with this issue, so much so that 
instead of going back into the private sector and doing the speaker's circuit as a former presidential candidate, very lucrative for him. He and his wife could be traveling around the country and he would be speaking and they'd be staying in fantastic five-star hotels and, you know, vacationing and spending time with their kids and their grandkids. Instead, he chose to come into the Trump administration to do this work because he's uniquely qualified to do it. And I remember the statements that were made about him during the appointment when President Trump said he was going to bring Dr. Carson in to HUD. They're like, well, what does he know about it? Well, you have to watch the movie and read the book if you want to know about that. I remember my first time hearing Dr. Carson was actually right here in St. Louis. There's a conference every year. And the most amazing speakers come to it. It's put on by Donna Hearn of Education Policy Conference. It's, it's EPC is the nickname for it. Um, as she's the head of the Constitutional Coalition here in Missouri. And I went to the dinner because he was the headline speaker. So I show up. I'm sitting at the dinner with, you know, at a table with friends. And he begins to speak. And it was just unbelievable, an amazing story that he shared and really upbeat, encouraging and so much brilliance because, you know, he was a neurosurgeon. He is a neurosurgeon. But then after that, there's been so many other opportunities for me to hear him, um, not in person, but, uh, you know, through through other means and to read his work. And now here he is working at HUD. And this is the hard work. Let's face it. HUD's not the agency that you, you know, it's not your rock star agency that, you know, the, the agency that's all, the, you know, the cool government stuff. It's housing and urban development. It's helping America's poorest citizens through tax dollars and, and either intervention or lack of intervention, which is he's talking about getting these regulations and some of these things out of the way. And this is the work that he's chosen to do. So I have a lot of respect for that when you when you have the opportunity to go just do fun, lucrative things, but you instead choose the much more difficult work of, of, of running HUD and revamping it and bringing it. This is the kind of work that's going to last on for generations as his neurosurgery did and, and will continue to uh, kind of live on. This kind of work at HUD will continue to do the same thing. And I'm really encouraged by it. I'm, I'm glad to see it. So I'll be looking forward to reading the actual rule when it comes out in the fall and making comments. We'll take calls in hour two if you'd like to call into the show. The call lines are open at 866-963-2037. That's 866-963-2037. That's hour one. We got hour two up next. Stay there. <laughs> 